Blog Talk Radio. today. Good love. Is your relationship everything you want it to be? Are you living a fulfilled, passionate life empowered with choices that ignite you to the next level? Good love makes your whole life better. So join America's good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, on a journey to your healthiest life yet. A regular on Dr. Oz and Dr. Drew, She's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, and is featured in countless publications from USA Today to Essence Magazine. The creator of life-changing Get Unstuck Now, Love, Money, and Save a Seminars, she's counseled millions, but today she's here just for you with the hottest topics, guests, and trends. This is Good Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. Ah, hello everyone and welcome. Welcome to this edition of the Dr. Brenda Wade Good Love Show. This podcast is all about good love and today we have a special guest, Thomas Gagliano, who is a sought-after speaker, top-selling author, successful entrepreneur, and He's going to talk about his book. You're going to love this title. I love this title. The book is called The Problem Was Me. How to End Negative Self-Talk and Take Your Life to the Next Level. Now, this is very, very powerful because we all know that self-talk sets patterns in motion in our brains. And the book is based on neuroscience, but it's also based on this wonderful interaction between what happens physiologically, biologically, and what happens emotionally and spiritually in our lives. So strap yourself in. It's going to be a hot conversation because he's going to take on some really tough issues tonight looking at why marriages and relationships break down. What is it that you bring to your relationships if they're not working because you're the common denominator. Maybe your version of intimacy is rooted in your childhood. Were your parents warm or close or were they cold and distant? Did they avoid intimacy? All that and more. But first, let me remind you that here on Good Love Radio, we're always focused on why good love is essential to your own greatness. Think about that. Essential to your greatness. Why? Because to create good love in your life, you have to grow yourself and expand your possibilities in love. We're going to really focus tonight on how to identify negative thought patterns. How do you identify the negative thought patterns, the negative childhood patterns that are blocking you from good love? 
And how do you break the chains of what happened back then so that you are free to experience what is happening right now? So we're going to work with Tom Gaziano in just a moment. But first, I want you to repeat with me the little mantra that we use here on Good Love Radio. And that mantra is, now repeat this with me, I am worthy. Repeat that, I am worthy. And then, I am deserving. Say it to yourself or out loud if you can. I am deserving. And say it with some conviction. I am deserving. And I love me unconditionally. I love me unconditionally. That means we don't have to be the right height, color, weight, financial profile, any of that stuff to be lovable. We are already lovable, and you all know that's a key to good love. I am worthy, I am deserving, and I love me unconditionally. It opens the door to be able to love and accept someone else if we can love and accept ourselves. All right, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest tonight. You're going to meet Tom Gagliano, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Buddha. I love that, the Brooklyn Buddha. He's helped countless people discover relationship happiness and to work toward achieving overall well-being. He wrote the book, The Problem Was Me, which contains his life story and the story of many other people, men and women of every age and stripe, who found a better life using the powerful techniques based in both neuroscience and holistic health. Tom says, true healing happens. Get this, everybody. When you realize you're not an evil person who deserves to be punished, but you're an enlightened being making your way out of the dark. I love that quote. His website is www.thomasgagliano, that's spelled G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O, G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O, www.thomasgagliano.com. Welcome to the program, everyone. Tom Gagliano, hello. Hello, and thank you. Thank you oh. for having me. Oh, Tom, it is a pleasure. I'm excited that you hear you've said some outrageous things here, like you think relationships are not always 50-50? Woo! Absolutely not. You know, the, one of the things we all have to remember is we're not only in the relationship with our significant other, but we're also in the relationship with all their messages that they bring into that relationship, all their childhood messages. And when we know that, when we can accept the other person's pimples and 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 uh, and moles, and we accept who they are, then it's so much easier for them to hear what our needs are and accept who we are. And it's not always fifty-fifty. I mean, there, there are times that my wife has to be more of the relationship than me, and I need to be more of the relationship than her, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as, of course, it's not always one person being most of the relationship. But there's certain things that. My wife handles better than I do, and certain things I handle better than she does. And it's okay because marriage, relationships, it's a we process. It's not a me process. And that's what happens with couples is it becomes a me process. It becomes a process where they feel like they're victims to each other, 
And when people are victims to each other, they're unable to hear the other person's concerns. They can't. They're in self-survival mode. So when you say victims to each other, Tom, open that up. And then, of course, I want you to back up for a hot second here and tell us a little bit bit about you and your story. But what do you mean when you say victims to each other? What I mean by that is when I have a couple that comes to me, they both want the same thing. They want to feel like they matter to the other person. They want to feel important. They want to feel listened to. Unfortunately, when we don't, we're not aware of what we bring into the relationship, the version of intimacy we saw as children. We then become victims. We feel that the other person doesn't care. The other person's not listening. And what happens if you have two victims, nobody's listening to the other one. And, and they form what I call a dance. It's a negative dance. You do step one, I do step two, you do step three. The boxing gloves go up. And at that point, nobody can hear the other's concerns, and then that just fuels more of that victim mentality. Mm. So the victim syndrome, everybody, you might want to write this down. The victim syndrome is really based on not listening and not feeling heard by the other person. But, Tom, you already dropped something very important here, and that is that our expectations match the ones we learned in childhood. So tell us a bit about your childhood. How did you come to be the Brooklyn Buddha, and where did all this begin? Well, it's very funny. If you would have told me that this is what I'd be doing 10 years ago, I I really would have thought you were really missing something because <laughs> you know, I, I believe me I you know it's sometimes I look up and I go god you getting a kick out of all this because this is an amazing journey here I came from a really tough childhood really bad just to sum it up I came from a childhood where if my father would come home after a certain time it meant he was going to come home drunk and it meant he was going to hurt someone and uh, I was the oldest so I was the kid sitting at the top of the stairs ready to run down when I heard yelling, screaming, smacking. What that does to you, Brenda, is it it creates um, a feeling like you're not important. You know, I love the way your show opened and that feeling that you have value, the feeling that you're worth, you have worthiness. But that all comes from the initial messages your parents give you. Children are egocentric, meaning the world revolves around them. If my dad is out drinking and not home with me, it means not something's wrong with him. But as a child, I thought something was wrong with me. I must be unlovable, unworthy. And I tell my clients all the time, there is nothing more important than the relationship you have with yourself. If you're not good in your own skin and comfortable in your own skin, you're going to sabotage every relationship in your life. And that's what happened to me. I grew up with this real anger. I was a bully as a kid, a recovering addict, and I wanted the world to pay the bill for what happened to me as a kid. I was an angry kid. And when the world didn't cooperate, I became that victim, always blaming and blaming. And it became self-righteousness and isolation set in. And I had this destructive entitlement. I gave myself permission to do things that were hurting other people and myself. And to answer your question, what changed me was life. There's no greater teacher. My wife left me. My kids left me. And I had to fix what was broken inside of me. Or I was going to have a very lonely life. And when I started to do that and fix myself and understand that the problem was I didn't love me. It wasn't my wife and kids that didn't love me. I didn't love me. I had a message of childhood that told me I wasn't worthy of love. I wasn't important. And after I did that, 
my goal was to help other people and also give my children the message that I didn't have as a kid, and that was that I was going to create a safe place where they could share their feelings, whatever those feelings were. And, and with that, um, I started to form groups in my house, in schools and churches, focusing on childhood messages. Those messages not only influence the intimacy we have or don't have, but they influence our parenting skills. They influence even the careers we choose. If at a young age I see mom and dad are having a problem, as a child we try to fill in the void. If mom and dad are nurturing each other properly, then a child can remain a child. But if there's something going on that mom isn't getting their needs met or dad isn't getting their needs met, the children take on roles, the caretaker role, the people please a role, where you say yes all the time because it's too painful to say and no. And for you, you certainly as the oldest and in a family where your dad wasn't able to function as the dad, were you forced into that caretaker role? Absolutely. I had to give, as a child, I sensed, now, again, I didn't know this intellectually. This is all emotion we're talking about, not intellectual. Emotionally, I sense there's a problem in the house. I have to fill some of the voids. Now, some children become very defiant and run away from their household. Some children, as I said, become the caretaker. We form all these different roles, and we do it to fill the voids in the childhood. Remember, our parents, they're really our first heroes, whether we want whether they want that responsibility or not, they're our first heroes. They teach us how to view the world and how the world views us. So they mean everything to us at a certain age. We just want their acknowledgement. We want their validation. And when we don't get it, like you said in the beginning of the show, I lose that feeling that I'm worthy. And that's what I do in my groups that I facilitate. We've got to get that feeling back that we are worthy, that we are lovable. So for you, you said life handed you an eviction notice. Either you clean up your act or you're going to be out of here. What was your first step? What did you do? What did you learn that helped you turn it around? Well, I realized that I had to build awareness first. I had to see that my parents weren't bad people. They were people that did the best that they really could. But nevertheless, I had to build awareness. What I teach is when you build awareness, it gives you different options. It gives you more choices to make. Your actions can change. And if you maintain those actions, they become habits. So when I first got into therapy and 12-step programs, I fought it in the beginning. But as I started to build awareness, I started to realize that what I was doing was sabotaging my relationships is, is exactly what I was doing. And when I started to help other people, when I really started to fix that brokenness inside of me and I started to run groups and do all the things I said I was doing, we would first start with the childhood message. I call this the warden, that inner critic. You know that little voice in your head that tells you what you're doing wrong all the time? Not I have allowing no you to idea celebrate. what you're talking about, Tom. Right. <laughs> and, that's, and that is what needs to be exposed. Because if you're listening to that inner voice, even when you say affirmations, it's amazing how when your childhood wounds are triggered, how that warden will step back in and override all those positive affirmations because your wound is touched. So yeah. you need to And really I love it that you say warden because yeah. literally those old thoughts, that those put-downs, those negative things keep us in prison. 
Absolutely. It literally puts us in prison and keeps us in prison. And I was, of course, joking, saying I have no idea what you're talking about because it used to be my mother's voice that came on. Right. And it was not pretty. Now, by the way, everybody, if you would like to join the conversation, if you have questions for Tom, please call 347-989-0776 or... You can hit us back on Facebook at Dr. Brenda Wade or tweet us, Dr. Brenda Wade. And Cliff, who is our associate producer and moderator, is standing by to take your questions and field those so that Tom can answer them. So please feel free, Dr. Brenda Wade on Facebook or Twitter or 347-989-0776. All right, Tom, so you started working on your own negative patterns. And did you have that one thought that was kind of the favorite warden, if you will? Because most of us have that favorite one. I think uh, that's a great question, and I never thought of it like that, but it makes sense. I think the, the, the one thought that I had is really that I realized that when other people showed vulnerability, I thought of it as such courage but when I showed vulnerability, I saw it as just a message that I was inferior and people would run. And I realized at some point that when I viewed other people being courageous when they were emotionally vulnerable, I didn't view myself as being courageous. I looked at myself as being inept, incompetent, and I would hide that. And I started to realize basically with awareness that why did I see other people as being courageous yet myself, I saw it as being um, defective. And, and I think that helped me to understand that my thinking was really distorted. You know, it's funny when you, when you realize and make the, the, um, the acclamation that the problem was me, the rest of this stuff can go, move forward because you're not, you're taking responsibility. You're not looking at other people around you trying to fix them. You're looking at yourself. And I think when, when I did that, that was the point in my life when I started to realize, you know what, I can either fix this world, but boy, that's going to take a long time, or I can work on me. And, and I think that's what really helped me. And by working on yourself, you're actually helping to fix the world. A hundred percent. Each one of us that awakens does our part to make the world better. You know, right. you make me think of my first experience in therapy, Tom. I was in a relationship with someone I really loved, but there was just constant friction in the relationship right. and, and upset and tension. And I went into therapy, and one day about six weeks after I started therapy, I was sitting in the living room in our little apartment, and I thought, gee, you know, things are so peaceful around here now. We're getting along so well. And then the bell went off. Doing! Yep, yep. I am the one in therapy. Oh, my God. You mean it was me? <laughs> and I had no idea until I got into this intensive therapeutic process that I was creating all the friction with my defensiveness. Right. So when I saw the title of your book, I thought, oh, man, I think I could have written this book. The problem was me. <laughs> right, right. And, and, I, and I have to tell you, when I have couples come into me, and I make a simple comment, and I tell them, look, you know, we can work on your partner all day long and get nowhere. 
but I want you to bring to the table what you can do to make this relationship better. Mm. What do you want to do? And I've stopped sessions saying, you know what, if you're going to be in this, in, in this session and just say there's nothing I can do, then I can't have this session because I can't help you. But if you bring to the table, this is what I can do to make it better, and they bring to the table, this is what I, have, what I can do to make it better, I know I have something to work with. And then if I give them the suggestions, and I have a few of them, on how to make the environment safer and how to make a safety plan and, and all the things that you know, I talk about, Things really happen. And it's funny, the people that do that in my sessions think I'm a genius. <laughs> the ones that come in are always working on their partner. They think I don't know what I'm talking about. So it's an amazing feat. But Oh, that's, that is an amazing feat because you're really getting into one of the most important things in doing couples work, which is that so often, and you'll have to forgive me for this, couples work goes wrong because all people focus on in the session are the problems. Yep. If you're going to get something, you've yep. got to focus on solution. Absolutely. 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 Right. So for you, you reached a turning point. You discovered that you could do work on yourself and change things. What was the most powerful thing that you found that really turned your life around and, and launched you on this new path, Tom? It was my father, believe it or not. It was that monster that used to beat me as a kid. And mm. it was very funny because uh, I had a situation where my father, you know, had cancer. He died about 18 years ago. And my, my mother said to me, Tommy, she, she said, I think you better go visit your dad. He, he's very ill in the hospital. I don't know how long he's going to live. And, of course, I had a lot of intrepidation with that. And I went to the hospital one night to visit him. And just to let you know, my father became a wonderful grandfather of my children. He got help himself, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. He went to uh, therapy, uh, just a changed man. But to me, he was a 10-foot monster. And I walked into the hospital that night, and my father was hooked up to morphine. He was very ill. And I sat there talking to him, and after a couple of minutes, I got up to leave. So he said to me, Tommy, sit there just for another minute. I wanted to tell you something. He said, you know, I was sitting where you were sitting 20 years ago. He said, and my father was dying from lung cancer. He says, I could never tell my father that I loved him. I could never tell my father that I cared about him. He says, and I don't want that to happen to you. I really don't want you to live with that. You know, and I, I remember at the time saying, you know, here's a man that's hooked up to morphine. It's, he's riddled with cancer, yet he saw my pain. He was able to see my pain. And I, I remember getting up from the hospital room, and I took his hand, and he pulled me close to him, and he started to cry. And I had never seen my father cry. The only time I ever saw my father cry was when he would beat me up when I was a kid, and he would say, I'm sorry, forgive me, that kind of drunken stoop he would be in. But these were real tears. And I left the hospital room feeling a lot of pain, but I couldn't trust him with my pain at that point, at that point. And I did talk to him after that. I was able to resolve a lot of things. And then, then one day, about three months after he passed away, my mother had given me his journaling book. She said to me, listen, she said, here's the book your father used to journal in. So I took the book and I started to read it. And I realized that, you know, this guy wasn't a bad guy. This guy was a, a guy just like me. I mean, he would write things in his journal exactly how I felt. He was afraid to, to approach the world. He had so much anger and resentment. And, and I started relating to him, not as a 10-foot giant, but really as a man, like I said, that was, was 
he wasn't an evil guy no more. He was a guy that really had his own demons, and he, he did love me, and he was capable of love. And I think after that, it kind of helped me understand things a lot better and find a little compassion for myself. And that's, you know, what I always talk about in my groups. Wow, that is such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Oh, I could feel that. My heart was like, oh, my God, I could picture you sitting there in the hospital room and your dad really taking all, must have taken a lot of his courage and what was left of his strength. Right. Tell you he didn't want that for you. And exactly. Exactly. To, to yep. see his innermost thoughts. That is amazing. And for those who don't get a chance to have that kind of parting and that kind of awareness, it's still possible yes. to do that healing, isn't it, Tom? Absolutely. And again, it, you have to be able, and, and here's where the, the obstacle is nobody likes to deal with pain. Nobody likes to deal with their inner wounds. I mean, we want to run from who likes that. But if you have the courage to look under those unswept corners of your life and to really look at those wounds, see how they affect you in your adult life and work on that, it becomes a we process, by the way. You need professional help. Maybe you need a support group. I'm a big believer in support groups. Believe me, the rewards on the other end are unbelievable because you love yourself. You feel compassion for yourself you feel like um you accept who you are it's all about humility knowing that i'm made up of the grain of the earth the strengths and the and ending and, and strengths and weaknesses yeah the and that's one of the things you learn in a support group because one of the things that the first process group i was ever in i think it was about 23 years old i was shocked right. and i heard all these other people talk about their lives because I had no idea that right. anybody else was going through the stuff I had gone through. I thought I was the only family where, right. you know, my parents were angry, parents who were abusive, and I thought, you know, this was just me, and I kept it a secret. And then exactly. here people talking about it and talking about worse. Yep, and, and it's a, a wonderful expression, we're only as sick as our darkest secrets. That's right. And it's, That's it's right. very very powerful and and my four groups that i facilitate a week all of those groups have each other on their text messaging a text group and when they have a problem they're never alone they, unless they choose to be and i believe so much in that process and that's what i you know what i do in my life and what i talk about in, in my book the problem with me was about how important that is to have other people hold you up when you you just you know people could do for you what you can't do for yourself i just and that's firmly one of that. the issues i just have to come down with both feet right here, Tom. I can't help myself. <laughs> that is one of the issues with our culture. Right. We really believe in that rugged American individualistic way of living. Around the world, I have found, you know, I've traveled everywhere you can think of just about, and people live in a much more communal, family-oriented, connected way. You yeah. know, neighbors are really there for neighbors, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we we have this way, and some of it I think is because, and I have to put my little theory out there, because I, uh, this is what I've observed <laughs> in my years of working with, with literally thousands of people from right. the tour and this and that. We take our wounds here in America, because everybody here came to this country or was already in this country and experienced severe trauma 
that never got healed. Yep. And all you, this unhealed stuff. You're so you're so right. Get so right. out by us pushing people away. So yep. I want to just put in my own statement there that what you said is vitally important. And for those who've never been part of being in a therapeutic process or class or group where you get the opportunity to grow and transform and to get over feeling ashamed about your childhood, because everybody's got stuff in their family and their childhood, this right. is a great to take on. So I challenge you, good love listeners, I challenge you to take Tom's advice and join some sort of class or group or therapeutic process for yourself and watch what happens. Oops, we have our first question, Tom, so hang on here. Sure. Okay, we got a question from Facebook. It says, I seem to have adopted my parents' method of, quote, disciplining children. Mm-hmm. When I see my kids act up, I immediately follow my father's angry intolerance. I want to stop this behavior, but I just feel stuck in this pattern. What should I do? One of the things I tell my clients, which pertains to this wonderfully, is most of us as parents, we either do exactly what our parents did, or we do the exact opposite all the way the other way. When you come from sometimes heavy discipline, sometimes you become very permissive as a parent, or you become just as disciplined. I will tell your, your, uh, the, the person that sent that question in, next time you're angry at your kid, stop and pause. Think about when you were a child at that age, what would you have wanted to hear from your parents at that time? You know, let compassion guide what you say and the way you say it. So put yourself in your child's position. And say to yourself, boy, what would I want my mom or dad to tell me or give me at that point in my life? Wow, that's really good. And I'm going to take a swing at that too, Tom. I used to host a television show called Parenting by Wade. And I would give all the parents who wrote in advice very similar to what you just said, which is put yourself in the child's shoes. And I would add one more thing. And remember, you are still the parent. Because Mm -hmm. what you said a moment ago about parents swinging from being overly harsh to being overly permissive, I have found that with most of the parents I work with today and most of those who come to our classes, et cetera, those parents have swung too far. The child is now in charge of the family. Right. They, are, right. they feel they're hurting their child if they hold the child accountable, if they give the child limits, if they don't let the child make every decision according to the child's likes and dislikes. So I want, and what that does is make the child feel more insecure and angry because there are no parents on duty. So let me just add that, everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you go too far the other way, the child's never going to learn how to get out of their own messes or learn how to take some actions, and and you'll destroy their self-esteem. It's important to always remember boundaries. I can talk to my children about anything. It doesn't mean I have to bend my boundaries. It doesn't mean I have to do what they tell me to do, but I certainly want to create that atmosphere, and that's the most important thing I tell all parents 
number one is to create a safe environment where your children can share their feelings in a respectable way, no matter what those feelings are, even if you don't agree with that. If your child can't share their feelings with you, and by the way, this is also in a relationship with your significant other. If you can't share feelings with each other, okay, if one person is always shutting down or raging in anger, if you can't develop safe communications with each other, nothing's going to work from there. You'll never develop healthy boundaries, and you'll certainly never develop intimacy. So you need to make a safety plan for each other in a way, and, and similar to your children, your children in a respectable way have to so share their feelings. give us an example, Tom. Give us an example of a safety plan that a couple could put in place to make sure both people feel safe in the relationship. I had a couple come to me. And the guy was always complaining that whenever something happened in the, in the family, any confrontation or anything, his wife would just shut down and wouldn't talk. And as I probed into her childhood, she said her mom was great. And she, she said every time I got my report card, my mom would make this face, this face of disappointment. And what was happening in their relationship was she was time traveling. When she felt like she was a disappointment to her husband, she, she would shut down. She'd go away, and it would make her husband crazy. So we made these rules of engagement, a safety plan. The safety plan is when something bothers you, I'm not safe if you shut down. You need to talk to me about how you feel. Not right and wrong. We'll put right and wrong in the closet. It doesn't count. How you feel. Feelings are not about right and wrong. If I feel one way, it doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. It's how I feel. So I try to take clients into feeling, into their feeling mode and, and to make that safety plan of I'm not safe when you shut down. If there's a problem in the family, we need to talk. And both people have to keep safety rules so that they keep the environment safe so feelings can be shared. You know, again, if you come from a childhood where one parent was always controlling the outcome or one parent was always shutting down, or one, or, or, or one parent stayed in resentment and wouldn't talk to the other parent. All of this stuff is in your head. There are recordings in your head. So you've got to be able to look at what you came from and see how it affects your life in the here and now. And you make a safety plan so you could come out of that and realize that, you know, when my husband does this, he's not my mother. He's not my father. I'm time traveling here. It's distorting the way I hear what he says, and I'm distorting the way I feel about the situation. Again, awareness. If I grow in that, then I could take the actions not to shut down, not to withdraw, and be in the conversation and make it a we process. So I don't know if I explained that well, but that's like an example of yeah. how to create safety. So the, the key here is you're saying if we shut down and we begin to, I call it getting triggered, get triggered right. by something your spouse is doing, they... Right. They remind you of something mom or dad did that hurt you or scared you. So you have to say, when you do that thing, I don't feel safe. Yeah. What okay. happened, when you do that, I feel blank. One thing that's very important that I find with couples, with everyone, when we get afraid, really afraid, we go back to what we did at a very early age to keep ourselves safe. As children, it was safety, not as adults. But as children, it was safety. For instance, if I shut down as a kid when I got afraid that mom and dad were fighting, I'm going to do that again in my adult life when there's confrontation. If I raged at one of them, I'll do that again. 
in my adult life. People don't connect the dots of how the A creates the B. And if we become more aware of what we did as children when we were afraid, we'll realize we're doing some of the same behaviors as an adult. Because as a child, it was linked to self-survival. And that's why we, sometimes we hear our mother's voice or our father's voice in our, spouse's, in our spouse. And that really screws things up if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. So one of the questions that just came in, Tom, is I have been divorced twice, and I want to get married again. I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble reading this one. I, I want to get married again. Whoever wrote this is, is upset because you scrambled your words a little bit, but that's okay. I'm going to decipher it. I want to get married again, but I'm afraid I picked someone just like my other two husbands. Right. Okay. All right. Got right. it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, whoever that is, I give you a lot of credit for having the awareness to look at yourself and say, you know what, I may be the common denominator here. I give you a lot of credit for that. That's, a lot of people keep thinking it's the other person. So I think that's a great way to start. And I think you have to check out really your expectations and go into it differently. We go into our relationships the same way all the time. We find people that maybe we could take care of or people that maybe could take care of us or people that we could control or people that could control us. So you really have to think about you know, um, what's going on inside of you as far as your expectations go. And, and, and then take a look at that. But the first red flag is, can we both talk to each other and share with each other? Are we safe with each other? Again, I say the same thing. If, any of, if, if either person is not safe sharing their feelings in the relationship, that's got to be – that's – the preliminary for having a healthy relationship. If you don't do that, you will start a destructive dance in your relationship. And, again, two years down the road, it's not going to work out. So for the person who sent us that question, if you see a pattern, right. what Tom is saying is you are the common denominator. So do the work on yourself first before you get into that third marriage. We know that with each succeeding marriage if you don't do the work the divorce rate just gets that much higher second marriages about 75 percent divorce rate and then for third marriages i think it's it's practically you know off the charts it's like you're just going to get divorced again so the work the only way to change those patterns is to do exactly what tom is saying which is the hardest thing for any of us is to look at ourselves, and none of us can see ourselves. That's what this whole therapeutic process, support groups, whether it's a 12-step program or whether it's your women's spiritual circle or whether it's a group at your church or synagogue, whatever it is, we can't see ourselves. So, Tom, you're you're really holding up that big mirror, so I appreciate that. Yeah, and the relationship is never going to make you feel whole inside. It won't. You have, we can only make ourselves feel whole inside. And, and if uh, somebody came to me married twice and was thinking about a third relationship, I would honestly say to them, for right now, let's work on you. Let's talk about you know, your core beliefs. What's, what do you want out of a relationship? 
you know, and, and, and work on you and, and then get into a relationship. When, when, like I said before, when you're better equipped in your own skin, when you like who you are, then you're healthier and you're making a better decision out there. You know, many people, you know, look for their significant other to fill a void inside of them. And, and it really never works that way. You know, if I need to fill my own void, and, and after that, I can be very supportive to my significant other, to my wife. But if I'm looking for them to fill a void in me, most likely I'm going to be looking for more than they can give me. And those expectations are going to crush the relationship. So what did you mean when you talked about expectations? You just said it again, expectations. Mm -hmm. What does that really mean for people entering a relationship or in a relationship? Well, we go back to what we spoke about earlier, and that is we need realistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations are only going to get you in trouble. Now, what are unrealistic expectations? You know, if I'm good with me, uh, again, I'm not going to expect you to fix something that's broken inside of me. And I need, again, I need to fix what is going on with me. Am I happy in my own skin? And if I'm not, I'm going to need you to either take care of me or maybe I'll look for somebody that I could take care of. But either way, it's not a balanced relationship. Either way, it's not a supportive relationship. Because even people that are caretakers out there, eventually they get tired. The world gets a little too heavy for them to keep going that way. Even they will eventually collapse. So you really need to be good inside of yourself. That's why you need to go to the individual areas where you can build that up so that, again, you're not looking for somebody to fill what they can't fill inside of you. You know, I have couples that, um, you know, they're, very, they're either very needy with each other, with, with, with one, I'm sorry, with one person's very needy with the other one, always like needing them to acknowledge them, to validate them, to make them feel whole. And then I have the other realm where they absolutely distance themselves so much that they never give them they're never in the relationship they're always halfway out the door and both are people that are so afraid of being abandoned and being alone that their expectations are are, are not balanced they're all they're all over the place so it's opposite sides of the same coin absolutely same absolutely. behavior i felt abandoned unloved or unwanted in childhood and so i distance myself I, can, I felt abandoned, unwanted, and unloved, so I'm all over you to make me feel good. Right, and, and I can have two clients with similar abandonment issues that totally act differently. One is all over the other person to the point that you need to tell me I love you five times a day, and the other one is so afraid of being abandoned that they never get close. So you can have, again, two opposite coins with the same core issue. Wow. So... We got one more question that just came in. Hang on. Sure. Ah, it's an infidelity question. Sure. Okay. I caught my wife cheating. We've separated, and we're in therapy now. I don't think it's working. What should we do? Great question, and this is a very common question with my clients. Infidelity, you can, you can heal from infidelity, but here's the one key. Both people have to be willing to take direction, both. You can't have one person working on the relationship when the other person isn't. So when you have infidelity, if both people are not going to work on making it better, both people. Now, 
this is this this touches on sensitive issues because the one that's betrayed might sit back and say well why do i have to work on this he or she betrayed me unfortunately it doesn't work like that it's a we process if both participants are willing to work on the relationship now what i mean by that is take actions to make it better not words actions it can work but if one of the parties is not willing to work on the relationship especially the one who did the betraying it will never work and that's when it's the sign to get out of the relationship i've seen it work and i've seen it not work and the one common denominator is you need to take the actions to make it work and i have to tell you that i'm this has happened to me too. Um, I was, I, I did cheat on my wife. It's not, it's something that's hard for me to say, but it's a reality. I did this, but I made sure I was going to make my wife and my children the most important people in my life after that. And I worked hard at that, at making them, uh, giving my wife what she deserved, and that was all of me. Now, again, I've helped many men that have worked through this and are more intimate than they ever thought they would be because they were willing to take the actions needed to make the relationship better. And I've had other people that it didn't work. And why didn't it work? They weren't willing to take the actions needed to make the relationship work. So that's as simple as I can get it, as I can deliver it. The other side of that is it takes time because I know that from my work with people, who have infidelity in their relationships or some kind of betrayal. There's other other forms of betrayal, but this is probably the most painful form of betrayal. It takes time, and I've had many people get frustrated. Hey, wait a minute, we've been working on this, you know, for however period of time. Excellent point, yes. So what's been your experience about how long would you say uh, one would need to really hang tough and give their partner a chance? Well, it's a great look, but it's a loaded question. There's a lot of factors in this. Number one, the person that's betrayed goes through um, goes through stages. First, uh, when it first hits them, they feel that they're insane. They don't know who who the person betrayed them with, how many times, who with. Then there's the the feeling of unworthiness they have of what's what was the matter with me that this person did this to me. And then finally they understand that really they were powerless over this whole thing. But I could tell you, Brenda, the key is support groups. You know, I, I run both ends. I wrote I run a, a group for women that have been betrayed, and I, I run a group for men that have done the betraying. And, and when you hear other people feeling the same feelings that you do, you normalize your feelings. You don't feel like you're so insane. You feel like, wow, that's me. I'm not alone in this world. Both ends now, I'm in both groups. And all of a sudden, you start to stabilize your feelings. But you're right, it does take time. And, and here's, here's the funny thing about this is that, when I work with couples that do this, many times the betrayer will straighten his life out or her life out, and all of a sudden um, they are working diligently at this, and the person that's betrayed has sometimes a more difficult time because they have to look in the mirror themselves and, and look at their piece in this, and that's a very difficult thing to do for, 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 for that person to look at. And that's why sometimes it does take time for the healing to really occur. But I have to tell you that the couples that have worked through this and have really, um, um, you know, worked hard on this, 
they have wonderful, better relationships than they ever thought they would have because they had to get to a level of intimacy that they would have never gotten to if the betrayal wasn't in the family. You, you know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you said there about the other person having to look at themselves, what I've heard so often is a person who is betrayed tends to say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't pull the trigger. Exactly. This person had the smoking gun, and they were right. the who pulled the trigger. So I just want to say it doesn't mean you are to blame that the person right. went and had an affair. They made a choice to cheat. They're the cheater. But right. the marriage or the relationship can only heal if both people heal. And, that, and what I call that is the betrayer has to stop the betraying. Absolutely. You just forget about the whole thing if that doesn't happen. But when that happens in relationships, it's very easy to identify the relationship by the betrayer as being the only identified patient in the relationship. And that's true for a while. But after a while, when that person does work and stay sober and, and diligently work on themselves, you can't always have that as the identified patient. Now we have to look at the relationship in general and what the relationship needs to get better, not the identified patient. Good point, Tom. So we're coming into the home stretch, and I know that you have a wonderful program that is called Enhance the Intimacy in Your Life, and it's a video program. So first, start by... Talking to us about intimacy. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I do have that. Uh, it's a set of audios on my website. Um, and, and, and what I call it is just learning how to stop the destructive dance that sabotages your relationship. You know, when no to be right and when to choose closeness instead. So many couples come into sessions. All they want to do is be right. And i got to tell you, it makes no difference at a certain point who's right and wrong if you're not trying to get close. So I have this set of audios on my website, and my website has, you know, some TV appearances, radio shows and stuff, so a lot of free stuff in there. I also have a set of audios on parenting, you know, how to strengthen your parenting skills. Um, I, I notice so many times that parents, in, in, we all love our kids. We all do. And, and unfortunately, sometimes we not only give them our strengths, but we also stick our weaknesses in there as well. So what my audios try to do is develop self-awareness so that we know and better understand what actions we need to take. And, and if we can maintain those actions, then you've got healthy habits in your family, and that's what you want with your kids. So I have an audio on both, on parenting and on intimacy, and I also have a, I put together um, a Stop to Stress program. It consists of two assessments, which really are based on raising your level of satisfaction, helping you understand which areas in your life begs for your attention. Uh, and that's for, more, for those that really would like more individual consultation. So I have a whole load of neat stuff on my website. Great. It's, it's the problem well, with me.com. Tell us more about so. the intimacy, because that's the one that I think for most people, I think the stress reduction, the intimacy, parenting, they really are all connected because they all have to do with the patterns that we learned and what we saw growing up. But the one most people face the biggest challenges with is the intimacy one. Yes. It's one that's in your face. Absolutely. It's with children. So you said it's stop being right. So right. what's the first step in giving up the need to be right? It's reframing your thinking, really. It re it's cognitive therapy. It's how can I make this better? 
Now, again, you can't be the only one working on the relationship, and that's why I said, you know, for, for intimacy, for significant other, you need both people to work on it. But when I have people thinking about how, how can I make this better, now, you can always ask the person how you can do that. Do I have time to share a little story with my son? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. I'll give you a great example with my son, but you can relate this to, um, to your significant other as well. My son was pitching last year, a travel league team, 12 years old, and he was pitching and he didn't pitch well at all. He couldn't get the ball over the plate, and his team lost. So after the game, I went over to the dugout, and I'm thinking to myself, what can I do to be a good dad? Maybe I could put on my therapy hat. You know, I'll tell him how you're feeling, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe I could put on my pitching coach hat. Maybe I'll, I'll help him with his follow-through. You know, and I'm thinking about all of these things that I can do to help my son. My heart was in the right place. I walk into the dugout. He looks at me, and he goes to me in front of his friends now. He goes, Dad, I need a hug. And that's what he needed. He needed a hug from his dad. I didn't realize that. He told me what he needed. And, and the funny thing, Brenda was in front of all the kids, 12-year-old kids. He stands there, and he's hugging me tight for two, three minutes. They're all looking at this spectacle. Here's the oh. point. The point is he told me what he needed. He didn't need yes. a therapist. He didn't need a pitching coach. He needed what I would have wanted, a hug from my dad. Yes. And, and the point is the same thing with your significant other. When you start to build a, a closer relationship, ask your significant other, what do you need from me? Maybe you, you're, they don't want you to guide them or fix them or tell them what to do. Maybe they need a hug. Maybe they need to be listened to. When you have a better relationship in any area of your life, children, wife, husband, you can go to that person and say, you know what? I don't know what you need from me now. Tell me. I want to give it to you. See, that's the safety of a true, healthy relationship, wanting to help the other person, not being right, not fixing, just wanting to help the other person. And that's really what I try to get couples to do. Stop always thinking what the other person wants. Ask them and then give them what they need. Oh, that is so powerful, Tom, because my experience with couples is that that is often the one thing that is missing. And I think it's, it sounds so simple, but right. it's the most difficult thing, which is to listen. Right. Really listen to what the really other person listen. wants, what they need, and set your expectations according to what they want and need and who this person really is because said. there's right. so much projection, just so right. much that goes on. Now, I want to just flag one other thing. Yeah. Uh, I have had the experience, and I'm sure you have as well, of having one person from a couple come into classes or seminars or private therapy, and then magically the relationship gets better, somewhat like my own experience where I was the one doing the work and all of a sudden the relationship got better. So I do want to put in a plug, if your significant other isn't ready to come in yet, Sometimes the thing that I have seen convince people to come in is when the other partner changes. It changes the dynamic, changes the dance. We're not doing the tango anymore. I'm doing something else. Right. The glove, the, the hand doesn't fit the glove the same way. And when the, when the, when the hand changes, the glove's got to change. And that, and that is a wonderful way. You put it wonderfully. You know, 
things just don't stay. They say it's a caretaker doesn't caretake. Well, the other people are going to have to change. And, and I think that uh, exactly what you said. And that's why you've got to always pull back to it's, it, you know, thinking about you know, fixing yourself and working and focusing on yourself. And you're right. I, I can't tell you how many times you, know, you see somebody grow and you see somebody uh, um, love themselves more, take better care of themselves, and already they're changing those around them. You're 100% right. Mm. Well, Tom, this has been a powerful, powerful discussion. It's so great to have you. And I want everybody to know the book is called The Problem Was Me. The subtitle is How to End Negative Self-Talk and Take Your Life to the Next Level. And you can reach Tom Gagliano by going to his website, which is TomGagliano.com. And you can certainly, and I want to spell Tom's name for you so you get right in there and find the correct person. You spell that G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O. And Tom, you also have these great audios. There's a six-part audio coaching series where you're walking people through the common barriers that interfere with healthy relationships and the things that prevent intimacy in those relationships and taking real examples of the most common situations and the obstacles like the ones you've talked to us about tonight that affect your private clients and then how to correct destructive habit patterns and get to patterns that reconnect you with your partner. So all of that very, very valuable, very meaty material. And the key here, everybody, is when you work on it and you learn better, you can do better. So, Tom, take us home. As I used to say in the church, you can give us your last bit of wisdom you want to share with us. If I could tell everybody out there, the, the greatest thing is to allow, allow the help of others into your life. You know, many of us lost trust early on for other people, and trust becomes the biggest obstacle in allowing um, healing back into our life. So what we lost becomes the biggest thing that we need to gain back. And it's not an easy thing, but, you know, if I, I just try to allow other people to do for you what you can't do for yourself, and that is to trust other people. And I don't mean the people that are going to judge you or put you down. I mean the people that you really believe you're safe with, that you can talk to, that you know are there for you. And if you don't have that in your life, then find it in your life. Find a support group, a therapist, a coach, or whatever you need to do, because a we process is much better than a me process. So that's really what I have for you. For you. And Fabulous. I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to say that my my website is also theproblemwasme.com. It's a little easier than my last name. Okay, so. theproblemwasme.com. <laughs> right. We can all remember that. <laughs> right, right. <I> so <laughs> thank you again, Tom Galliano, for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for writing this wonderful book. Everybody, run, don't walk. <laughs> Pick that book up. Get those audios. Build a library. I say this week after week, build a library. Keep yourself in school. And to help you do that, I have a gift for you. It's a big gift. We have a two-day live intensive here in our Love, Money, and Seva Academy. Those who don't know Seva, it means selfless service. But the Love, Money, and Seva Academy is right here. I'm standing in it in San Francisco, and we are doing this two-day live intensive. We have special guest Bruce Cryer, who is one of the founders of the Heart Math Institute, and we have Phyllis Newhouse, 
who is a powerful woman entrepreneur and business owner who is going to share secrets that are going to surprise you about building not just wealth, which she has done, but building a truly fulfilling life. We want to say thank you to our wonderful producer, LeGrand Green. Thank you to our associate producer, also Cliff Dunning. And thank you to all of you. Blessings, everyone. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Tom.